Revelation 6 is talking about the seals that held the scroll shut. Historically, as is, is here, they were put on the scroll, making sure of the integrity of the scroll until the proper person who had the authority to open the scroll actually opened it. So earlier we read where it was, where it spoke of shallow and speaking of Jesus saying he is the credible one. He's the one who can open it. So we know according to Revelation 5 that it's Jesus who was immediately recognized as the one who could open the seals. I have told you in, in how I'm studying Revelation this time and how it's different because the historical look or the typical look at Revelation 6 is speaking of particular events with a start and a stop in some type of a sequence. And I have never found that very appealing, primarily because I never could make it connect and never seemed to make the sense that others could make it make and understand it. So what I'm going to do tonight is I'm going to read the typical views of the first and second seal that you can find almost anywhere in any commentary. And you'll see in just a second how drastically different it is what the Lord is showing me about these seals. I don't even know if I can say this word correctly. It's the preterist or preterist view. The belief is that everything that we read in Revelations is already past. It's history. That there's nothing about Revelation that is still yet to come. So there is that view. So their view of the first seal, the white horse with the rider and the bow and the crown, as Artabanus, king of Parthians, who slaughtered the Jews in Babylon. However, Ernest Renan, a 19th century modern rationalist preterist, interpreted the first horseman to be symbolic of the Roman Empire with Nero as the Antichrist. This rider who went forth conquering was Rome's march toward Jerusalem in the year 67 to suppress the great Jewish revolt. So that's what they think that the first seal represented. The historical view of the same first seal, views of Nicholas de Lira in the 14th century, Robert Fleming in the 17th century, and Thomas Scott, and gives several other names, they agreed that the first seal opened thereupon the death of Christ, so that when Jesus died, the first seal was opened. Puritan Joseph Mead associated the opening of the first seal to year 73 during the reign of Vespasian, just after the great Jewish revolt. Campagius Tringa, Alexander Keith, and Edward Bishop Elliot considered this period to have started with the death of Domitian and Nerva's rise to power in the year 96. This began Rome's golden age where the spread of the gospel and Christianity flourished. The futurist view is this writer represents the Antichrist who will head the revived Roman Empire at the end of history shortly after the rapture of the church. The idealist view, this writer is a symbol of the progress of the gospel of the conquering Christ mentioned in Revelation 5 and Revelation 19. So sort through all that and find some truth. When you study, that's what you find. And you walk away from that saying, I can't figure anything out. I don't know what to believe in the middle of all that. If really smart people over a long period of time have been reading this like I read it and coming up with this many answers, and this is just, I'm just scratching the surface of all that's out there that's taught about what this means. I want to tell you, if I had to believe this stuff, I would just throw up my hands and I wouldn't dare teach it. I mean, what in the world do you believe? 
it's such a scrambled mess that you just kind of throw up your hands and say, I don't know what any of it means. I could read you the same thing about the second seal, but it reads exactly the same. One group sees it all as history. One of them sees it as happening at the time of Christ. And so we step back away from this and say, God, if you don't show us, uh, we're not going to get it. That's just the truth. If you don't tell us the truth here. I do know that much of what we read now that confuses us was much more common in the day when it was written. They understood much of it because he was writing it to people who understood the symbolism and knew what they were reading. So I think it might have gotten harder with us. But when I started looking at Revelation, I just had to say, God, you're going to have to show me. He's very graciously done, especially from Revelation 4 and 5, helping me to understand that we have already entered into eternity. Again, that's a concept that is hard for us to get our minds around. We don't enter that when we die. We enter eternity when we're saved. We step into a place, into a relationship, where we can now exist in the presence of God, and that's not someday, that's right now. Yes, someday my, my soul will, and someday my body will. But my spirit, which is now back alive because sin has been dealt with, can actually exist in the presence of God right now. And again, one of those concept changes, the shifts that has occurred in me when I recognize that we're already in that throne room is that I've had several conversations with different people about this over the last couple of weeks. Jay mentioned this on Sunday. You and I see our life like a parade is passing by and we're only getting to look at this much at a time. We get to see a little bit of what's coming and we get to see a little bit about what has happened you know, already. So we get this much of a view. But the reality for God is he sees the entire parade. And what difference does this make? It's huge. If you'll consider it and let it sink in. If everything of your life is still current before God, it hasn't passed. Jay mentioned it well in Sunday school. Time is a gift that God gave us. He doesn't need it. He doesn't need the passing of time because he sees the beginning and he sees the end. And every bit of it is still current before him. We would look at the parade and say, oh, that part's already gone. I can't touch that. That's not God's view. God is, can still be as active in your past as he is in your present. You've got to work to get that in your head. That something you've done in your past is still as current and active in the mind and the heart of God as something waiting for you in your future. Because he sees it all. It, it's not past him. So what does that mean? We talked about this Sunday morning when Jesus is dealing with this woman at the well. What was he actually doing? What was he dealing with? We know now it was rejection, but where had the rejection occurred? In her past. What was he doing to that rejection in her past? He was erasing it. Didn't matter if it happened back there somewhere. What difference would it make to him? His power to affect that was as great as his power to affect her future, which we get to see. So we see God with these, this limitation that something in my past is already done, not to him. What's he forgiven? My sins which were in my past. He's wiped them clean. My past is as current in his present as my future is current in his present. That's one of those you're going to have to write a report on one of these days. So, you know, go ahead and be doing your outline, getting your notes down, because you'll have to turn in a report on this at the end of the semester. But when we recognize that we, when we're saved, we step into eternity, that means that my past is as active as my future. This is why I teach from the book of Joel. 
Joel chapter 2, like verse 26 or 27 or 28, when God makes a promise to Israel, to the Jews, I will give you back the years that the locusts have devoured. How can he do that? Everything that they seem to have wasted in all those years of rebellion, what's God promising them? I can give it all back to you. I can make you like the every miracle that we see Jesus do, that we see that happens at his hands, I'll say. They get to live now as if that past had never occurred. When he healed the guy who couldn't walk. When he got up and walked, did he walk like he had used to not walk or did he walk like he had always walked? He walked as if that problem had never been there. Why? Because God had the power to establish in this moment as if those moments had never happened. Does that matter to you? Yeah. Because when he paid the price and, and you're saved, what does he do? You get to live as if that other stuff never occurred powerful. That's one of those things that struck me in the, in when he was dealing with this woman at the well. Because never in any other story that I read, whether it is the woman caught in adultery or the lepers or anybody else, he never brings out their sin in the public. So why did he do it here? Well, he didn't. He wasn't dealing with her sin. He was dealing with the fact that she had been rejected. It hit me even after I preached it. If we were to begin right now and create the list of things that we knew that that woman did wrong, if we began to list them, the, the specific things that we could tell from that story that she was guilty of, how many things would be on the list? Zero. There's not a single thing in that story that says she's done anything wrong. We assume she did. She had five husbands. She's living with a man right now that's not her husband. We rolled that over to this category. Oh, that's wrong. Except for the fact that she was probably passed around like a piece of furniture, property to be traded, which was very common. Without her being attached to somebody, she would starve to death. So when we begin to look at this list of things that we've assumed that this woman came to the well because she was scorned, we don't know whether she had five awful husbands and she didn't do anything wrong. We don't know that story. We just made a big assumption. What we do know is that she had been rejected five times and the man that she was living with now was rejecting her because he wouldn't marry her. That's what we know. And Jesus was dealing with her rejection because he knew that if he didn't deal with her rejection, she could never drink of the water that he wanted to give her. Not her sin, the personal feelings that she had about herself. The same problem we have. Why don't we step into more than what God wants to give us? Because of the personal feelings we have about ourselves. The conclusions that we've drawn about us from voices that have spoken to us for years and years and years. And we don't see ourselves as worthy or able or capable or anything else. So we have the tendency to do what she did. Put up the guard, put up the defenses, hold everybody back that we can possibly hold back so I don't get hurt again. But it's still amazing to me that Jesus announced to her very boldly, I value you. I care about you. I don't care if you're a Samaritan. I don't care if you're a woman. I don't care what you have done. I don't care what any voice has ever said to you. I don't care. I value you. And we look at that story and recognize what happened in the moment when she went back down to the village and began to tell them this woman who had no credibility, suddenly had instantly had credibility, where everybody believed her. They came up to meet Jesus. And revival broke out in that town because she dealt with the rejection that she had felt because Jesus said, I value you. Well, he erased a, a past that she couldn't touch, brought her great power in the moment and reshaped the future of no telling how many families, how many thousands of people affected by that community because of one woman's willingness to deal with something that had happened in her story.
it blows me away. Because the name that she had received by all those men and all those messages is that, is that you're worthless or useless, unwanted, name after name that could have come out of each one of those stories. And Jesus was establishing in her something that was actually true because he could see what nobody else had time or wanted to see. Well, we come to Revelation 6 and we talked last week about the first seal and spent a lot of time talking about that phrase, come and see, come and be illuminated. Come and understand, come and comprehend was the invitation. So I will tell you that as I have studied this, instead of looking at the seals as events, historic events, whether they be past or future, the ones I've read to you, that I don't believe they're events at all. When you understand that what was written on the scroll was a plan of redemption, to bring men into freedom, to bring a redemptive work to completion was held within that scroll and those six seals had to be opened by someone and it doesn't make sense for it to be, as I read one of those, it happened when Jesus was slain because John's in this moment, sees Jesus in the throne room as if he had been slain. I was looking back at it as a historic event and these seals are still not open. So we know it's Jesus who opens them, but what he's describing to us, the seals represent principles the things that have to occur for anyone, any of us to step into the redemptive plan of Christ, into the fullness of it. So the first one was the white horse. And we're not confused by the symbolism of white. It means cleanliness or, or cleanness and purity before God. We read 1 Peter 1.15. It says, like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because that is, as it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So what we talked about last week was that first horse and the rider who had a crown and a bow that the white horse is telling us that if we're going to step into the redemptive work, we have to overcome all humanness. We have to be able to step into a relationship with God in the spirit that allows us to function in that and to be able, because of what he's already provided, to overcome anything like, what was this woman overcoming when, at the well? She was overcoming the humanity that she had experienced in her past. She was overcoming humanness. Simply the consequences of what had happened because she was human. And he's saying that has to be dealt with in all of our lives for us to step into the future that God has. We read about it in the scriptures. We know that it's true. That arrow that was shot by the bow is truth that brings this type of illumination. We talked about Paul on the road to Damascus. What did the truth that was delivered to him do? It hit the mark. When Jesus says, you know, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Why do you kick against the pricks? What happened in that moment? An arrow was shot straight into Paul's heart and he had to confront what he was doing. That's what this white horse represents. It represents God in, in this moment coming to you, willing to illuminate and show you those areas of your life where the thinking is wrong, the beliefs are wrong, the struggles are wrong, that we have to overcome to step into the fullness of the redemptive plan. And he gave us the means by which we could overcome it. So we begin to recognize first concept under the first seal is that his expectation of us is purity. And that rider with the crown and all that the symbolism that we went through last week 
is representative of his desire to come and illuminate those dark areas of our life that have to be overcome, that he tells us how to overcome so that we can step into the redemptive work. Because what are the chances that we're going to enter into a new heaven and a new earth dragging that stuff behind us? Not going to happen. If we don't discover now or later how to dump that garbage of our past to step into the fullness of what he wants for us, then we'll be trying to drag that stuff into the new heaven and the new earth and it will never work. We will learn at some point in this life or in the millennial reign, we will learn how to get rid of that stuff. We will refuse to see ourselves as less than we are. We will refuse to accept things about ourselves that Satan has said that we're certainly not of God. We're not dumb. We're not stupid. We're not unwanted. We're not forgotten. You know, we're not any of those things that Satan wants us to believe. And we will come to the place one day or or another where we refuse to believe those things about ourselves. That's what this first principle is represented by the, the white horse, the rider, the bow, the crown. I can take you back through all those notes, but I'll just end up reteaching the lesson from last week. So we step now into this second, these seals, beginning in Revelation 6, verses 3 and 4. It says, and when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast, and these are not beasts. Unfortunately, it's a poor choice of words. It's just a living creature. All these representing some aspect of God. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, come and see. Come and be illuminated. Come and and see what I want to show you. And there went out another horse that was red. And power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth. And that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. So immediately, again, it would be so much easier to try to land this into some historical event where that actually occurred. Or to talk about some future event with a set of actors and a set of characters and all that stuff. Someday that's going to happen. We can click that off and say when that occurs, then we know Revelations is occurring. But what if, as the first one, it's a principle? What if it's trying to tell us something that has to be accomplished within our life for us to step into the fullness of a redemptive plan? Well, I'm going to propose to you that that is exactly what is said. The first thing that caught my attention is this word red, because when we talk about symbolism in the Bible, red goes one place quickly, goes to the blood. If it's red, it's talking about the blood. Well, I don't disagree with that. Don't question that at all, except for the fact that this word red is only used two times in the scripture. It's used here and it's used in Revelation 12, and it is the word pyros. What does that sound like it may be talking about? About fire. This is the only time that this is used. So this isn't talking symbolically of the blood of Jesus. This is a word that is speaking of fire. What does fire typically picture in the scripture? Typically pictures judgment. Our works will be tried in the fire to see what sort they are. Fire is a testing. It's a means of purification. That's what happens around fire. So when we begin reading this and and we're talking about a a red horse, we're not talking so much about the blood of Jesus in this as we are talking about the judgment that has to occur within us. So let me just kind of step through this. So the opening of the second seal comes with another invitation to come and see, to come and be illuminated. 
So into this picture where the white horse is now left, that it says, come and be illuminated and discover by the shooting of this bow, the truth that can be revealed. Let these things in your life be exposed. Look at what is there that doesn't need to be there. And into this situation comes this red horse. More illumination can bring greater truth. I've already said this, but the word red is translated into pyros, meaning a fiery red. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is described as fire. It says he, Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Matthew 3, 1, fire is needed for purification. Our God is a consuming fire, for he consumes all our dross and all our chafe that we may be formed into his image. So we begin to get this picture, not of red, but of fire, because that's really what's being talked about. If you're going to follow red, it's going to take you off the path. You have to understand that it's talking about something that was fiery. But the strange part about this, it didn't just say fiery and to bring this judgment. It also states it was granted that this rider could take peace from the earth. So again, that's a little different. We know that the rider on the first horse was Jesus. Not a question. Revelation 19 tells us this. But it was also granted for this rider to take peace from the earth. So it means that this rider, this person on this horse was given permission. So again, this is why we get this, this interpretation, like I was reading to you earlier, of all these different views. Pre-terrorist view, believing everything is history, interprets the second horseman to be symbolic of the great Jewish revolt and the insurrection of Vindex. Of course, that makes perfectly good sense. I think Vindex was the creator of the stuff that you clean your windows with. Oh, Velcro. Yes, Velcro. The historic view of this is the common historic view of the second seal is associated with the Roman period fraught with civil war between 32 would-be emperors that came and went during that time. It was the beginning of the end of the Roman Empire. The futurist view says the Antichrist will unleash World War III and crush any who claim to be Christians over after the rapture. The idealist view says seal judgments two through four represent the disintegration of both human civilization and creation resulting from their rejection of the Lamb of God. So, again, find your way through each one of those views and pick something out that makes sense. Well, I think I would just as soon stay with something that is far more simple, recognizing that he's talking about the fact that, there, that in our life, those things that come up in our story have to face that judgment. That judgment is a very real part of what happens for us to step in to the redemptive work, to think that we're going to get to that fullness of the redemptive work without this fiery red horse who came and had permission to take peace from the earth. Well, Matthew 10, 34, Jesus says this, do not think that I come to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. So what's he telling us? Why would Jesus say that? He said, I'm not, I didn't come to bring peace. We don't have to look around long to see that he was telling the truth. What did he bring actually? Yeah, he brought revolution. I mean, he, he brought a change in so many levels, almost incomprehensible. Even Peter asked one time, Lord, how do we receive this? This is so hard of a change. How do we receive this? How do we move from tradition to you know, marrying somebody because of tradition to marrying somebody because we love them? How do we move from the responsibilities that we have as Jews to the love of God that is being talked about and that you demonstrated? How can we start talking to women who we've been forbidden to talk to and tell them about God? 
How do we do this? This is hard for us to make this change. Peter clearly admitted it. But Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. And we'll talk a little bit more about that sword in just a second. Because that sword, we get it, sharper than any two-edged sword, the word of God. He came by his word to accomplish something. And if we don't get that, we won't move into the redemptive reality of Christ. He specifically called us to be those who were called out, separated. That's what the sword does. But we're never to be divided. There's never a, a permission for me to, to be divided from you as fellow believers. Separated from the world, yes. Not hating them, not avoiding them, but recognize that we've been called out because if there's no uniqueness in us, the world will never see the difference. They'll never see the love of God, the kindness of God, the peace of God, the joy of God. They'll never see it in us if we're not called out and asked to be separate. But again, never divided among ourselves. It's interesting that Jesus is the Prince of Peace, yet he brought a sword. Makes it very clear. The word of God is a living and active sword, according to Hebrews 4.12. His word illuminates our darkness and the carnal man wars against the truth that Christ is. This brings that persecution that he's talking about. If we think that we're supposed to become Christians so that we can live in peace, we missed it. If peace was what we were longing for to become Christians, he will give us the peace of God. He will not give us peace with the world. If we find peace with the world, something is amiss because he didn't call us into a life that would bring us peace with the world. So when we begin to understand this seal conceptually, the condition that he's talking about, the principle that he's trying to establish, he's trying to tell us that we will, by his truth, by his power, by his sword, we will be carved out, separated from the world. And if you want to live in the world, you can't enter into the fullness of the redemptive plan. It will never work. Because again, how much of the world he's going to allow you to drag into the Holy of Holies? How much of the world is he going to allow you to drag into the new heaven and the new earth? He's not going to do it. I mean, even the picture of the Holy of Holies, the historic view we have, what they were allowed to take in there was basically nothing. You're not going to be allowed to take the, the garbage of your life into the Holy of Holies. It was taken in and offered. That was dealt with before you ever entered into the Holy of Holies. We get this picture from the history we need to understand it conceptually here. So we need to talk briefly about the sword because most of the time when we look at the translations of what this seal means, it does have something to do with war. Whether it's the Antichrist who wages war at the end of the age, the most typical pictures of this is war. And I would just ask you the best you can to just erase that concept out of your mind. This is not about a war. It's not an event that includes a war. It's a situation where God's dealing with us to purify us. So we, we bring that white horse in, we bring the judgment in after that and recognize that, it's, that this word sword is a different word because the sword that you would fight a war with was a long weapon. I don't know what you would even call it, but it was a long, both hands, you see it in Braveheart, you see it in the movies, broadsword. They're fighting with these long weapons. Well, that's not the word that's used here. That's not the kind of sword that's in this picture. As a matter of fact, this sword was very short and used for a very different purpose. So they didn't fight these battles with these very short swords. Again, the short ones had different use. It is the same word, this sword, 
the short one is the same word used in Hebrews 4.12 that says the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. It wasn't for fighting the war. It was used for separation. So again, when you start looking at the symbolism, it lines up. It comes to take away the peace on the earth. It carves it out. It invades our self realm. It will always, and this is something that I wish Christians would get. I wish that we would understand that God will never tolerate those things in our life peacefully, that he's going to constantly be with that sword carving at us to bring holiness that he's expecting. That what we're tolerating within our own story, and I'm speaking to myself as well, what we tolerate within our own story, even bad attitudes, even just negativism, those kind of things that have a tendency to creep into our lives just like anybody else's. God is saying, I will take that short sword and I will cut that away. It kind of reminds me of what happens when you peel an apple and there's a spot in it that you don't want. What do you do? You just carve it out. It's not what you want and you carve it out. And that's the picture that he's creating here. This is, it also would represent the cutting away of our fleshly desires. It's the same thing as a spiritual circumcision, but it's representing the circumcision of the heart, that cutting away. The things we used to enjoy no longer fascinate us. It's necessary that our joy and peace can be brought onto a higher level and not trying to find peace with the earth. And this is how once dealt with, once we allow this and accept and recognize that if I'm going to step into the redemptive plan that God intended, I've got to allow him, I've got to expose my life to him and let him with that short sword not go to war. The war's done. He's now trying with this short sword to do surgery on me. Very, very complete picture right there of all that that sword does. So again, if we can begin to think new, and I'm having to think new, I'm having to make connections I've never made before between that white horse and this red horse. And next is the black horse. Like, okay, what in the world can that bring? Well, when I begin to study it, we'll see next week where it begins to bring these scales into balance, our life into balance. We would think that that would happen best in the light. When you stop and think about it, the way you find balance in your life isn't in the light. The way you find balance is in the dark. We'll talk at length about that. But what happens when you walk through a dark house, especially an unfamiliar one? What do you do? You're very careful because you're weighing everything. You're measuring with everything you have, every step that you take. You won't do that in a house fully lit. You'll just move. If there's going to be this measuring, it's going to happen in the dark. So we will get into that next time. Move from one to the next. Let go for just a little bit those concepts of events moving historically. And let us try to imagine, you know, I'm learning this for the first time myself, about that separating of soul and spirit, why we have to know the difference. Cutting away the thoughts and intents of our heart. Because that judgment, that fiery judgment, does one thing it's designed to do, and it's what? To make us pure. It's been illuminated. What do we not expect? That fiery judgment next to, to, to consume that which has been illuminated, that which we've seen. I started last week in the book of Ruth. Because in Ruth chapter 3, verse 3, Naomi is telling her daughter-in-law, Ruth, how to get ready for a bridegroom. How to prepare herself to step into the relationship with Boaz. And the first thing that Naomi says is to wash yourself. 
We're not going to enter into a relationship with Jesus if we're not washed first, if our sin is not dealt with. We can't bring that into the relationship. The second is, and she says, is, is anoint yourself. Put on that anointing. Take on the Holy Spirit. I had a long conversation with somebody this morning out of Matthew 25 about the ten virgins and, and about you know, when Jesus comes in all his glory. And I had this timeline drawn on this flip chart and, her, and this lady's mind is just, like you can tell, it's, I, I hope she was still there, but I think I might have lost her somewhere back there. There's, she said, I've never seen anything like this. And I said, well, there's, there's a reason why. And this is pretty fierce stuff. Because when you want to start looking at what needs to be carved away first in our life that we don't probably want to deal with, we don't want to talk about, the first thing for most of us that has to be carved away where the illuminating light has to be shown is religion itself. We haven't seen the damaging effect of religion. But when you think about this, and I won't call any names, but ask yourself how much trouble you could get in conceptually if you allowed this. What if for 40 years... Every ounce of literature taught within one denomination was written by three people. How wise is that? Every Sunday school lesson and every quarterly in every age group of every class was written by, by one of three people for almost 40 years. And that's what we've been taught. The thinking of three men. Surprise you? And you realize how narrowly our belief system gets brought when it's basically the teaching of three men. Because you think about how many quarterlies are used in Sunday school classes, that the total dependence of the teacher is to teach what's in that quarterly. It went on up into, through the 60s and into the 70s when that was still going on. It's changed some now. But for about 40 years, three people. I wouldn't advise that to anybody, any government, any organization, to have their thoughts led by that narrow of a group. So the, one of the first things that, where we have to have illumination for us to step into the fullness of the redemptive work that God wants for us is to look at the limitations and the problems that religion itself has created upon the Christian world. I shared with y'all earlier, I'm amazed when I've come to the places like I did Sunday morning to realize that Jesus wasn't dealing with her sin, he was dealing with her rejection. Because what I recognize is that when I discover God's heart, it's always more tender than I expected. It's moved by kindness more often than I imagined. I shared this one with you as well. You know, when we discovered why God wouldn't let Adam and Eve stay in the garden, I'd always taught it was punishment. They'd done something wrong. This was their punishment. No, they were now sinners and they couldn't eat from the tree of life because it was too dangerous to be around it because they would have lived eternally under that condemnation. Him keeping them out of there was the greatest act of kindness he could show them. He loved them. And it changes our reality of God. But it shouldn't because when, when Moses wanted to see him and God says, you know, nobody's ever seen me. He says, you know, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock. And then that one statement and he let all of his goodness pass before him. You want to know the nature of God? That it's the goodness of God. So it shouldn't surprise us that on that day he wasn't trying to be harsh or hard or critical of that woman who was at the well. He was dealing with what he truly knew deep inside of her was going to be the greatest restriction she had to overcome. And that was what she thought about herself. What does that tell us? What do we have the hardest time overcoming? What we feel about ourselves. It's amazing when you start down this path, how many scriptures that you've read, suddenly something new will come to life about them because that has always been a confusing passage. We say it looks pretty simple, 
But when you start trying to search out and say, what, there's something so profound here that I know I'm missing something. And then you hear something and realize that that born of water, that baptism of water, what did she tell Ruth first? You've got to be clean. What did she say next? You've got to take on the Holy Spirit. It had to be washed first. The cleansing was always first. And so when you read that scripture, you begin to recognize that that's what he was talking about. Why it was necessary, because you couldn't receive the, of the Spirit until you were clean. It doesn't mean he, he won't love me with those things there, because he does. But my acceptance with him is, is me giving him permission to deal with those things. First of all, the sin in my life to wash me clean. But then he also has to deal with the decision making, everything else that I've ever done that has to be changed within me.